0: Podcast. The Wagner Group's mercenary soldiers have been key players in Russia's war in Ukraine. After the events of the last few days, there seems to be no place for Wagner anymore in Vladimir Putin's Russia. This weekend, the mercenaries began a shocking new march, not towards Kyiv or anywhere in Ukraine— but to Moscow.
1: The head of the Wagner mercenary group has rallied his troops and reportedly returned to Russia.
0: Mercenaries declared a mutiny.
1: Long-brewing
0: tensions are now turning into something of an insurrection. The advance was led by Yevgeny Prigozhin, once thought to be among President Vladimir Putin's closest allies.
1: The evil of the military leadership of the country must be stopped. They are neglecting the lives of soldiers. They have forgotten the word justice, and we will bring it back.
0: While an apparent compromise deal has been reached, for now, questions remain about how this happened, what it means for Russia's leaders, and how it could reshape the war in Ukraine. I'm Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take.
1: My name is Niko Robyov. I'm a freelance journalist of Russian origin. About a month after the war broke out, I decided to leave Russia. And looking at what's happening there right now, I think I made the right choice.
0: Nico has been reporting on the war in Ukraine for the past year and a half, but he was just as surprised when the mutiny broke out. So, Nico, the Wagner Group has been around for almost 10 years now. It's a paramilitary group that operates all over the world and traditionally sort of in the shadows by design. But that really changed in the war in Ukraine, when Wagner fighters seemed to take center stage.
1: Russia's private army,
0: known for its brutality in Ukraine. Prigozhin trying to prove to Putin his hired guns can get the job done where regular Russian units fail. Now, that's partially due to their prowess on the battlefield, but mostly because of their outspoken leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin. So in recent months, he has been absolutely relentless in his criticism of the Russian war effort, posting video after video, taking really personal shots at the defense minister. I mean, you name it. It's felt untenable for some time. What caused it to spill over into open rebellion?
1: Sure, I mean, Prigozhin he's been, for several months now, he's been beefing with the, with the defense ministry He's released videos of dead soldiers and him ranting and screaming to the camera, where's the ammo, where's the ammo? He believes that the Russian defense minister is deliberately holding back supplies for, well, maybe not deliberately, maybe they were just like deprioritized. And he was angry about that. Then he started writing this whole sort of populist wave, like, raging against the elites. So it's really kind of evolved into this sort of, I guess, kind of Donald Trump-esque raging against the elites, even though he is himself, obviously, a billionaire oligarch. While tensions had been
0: simmering, the breaking point appears to have been a deadly attack on Wagner fighters, which Prigozhin claims was ordered by Russia's Ministry of Defense, or MOD. — Prigozhin released video of an alleged Russian airstrike on a Wagner camp in Ukraine, demanding revenge. Russia's defense ministry denied the attack.
1: From the defense ministry's point of view, Prigozhin was getting uh, too big for his boots. He not only had his own private army, but he was also actively uh, competing with their interests. I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about Purgosian's
0: biography. He's he's the central character of this drama, and he actually started out
1: selling hot dogs
0: in the streets of St. Petersburg.
1: Right. And before he was a hot dog man, he was a young hooligan, and he actually served time for a string of burglaries and savagely mugging a woman at knife point. And sometime after he got out, he opened the, the hot dog stand, but. There's a couple of different accounts of how he earned his fortune after that. One story is that he used his hot dog money to open up a restaurant, which was frequented by Vladimir Putin, who was a high-ranking official in St. Petersburg at the time. His catering company hosted events for foreign leaders as well as President Vladimir Putin's private birthday parties. Another story is that he made a fortune through the gambling business in St. Petersburg at which time Putin was the chairman of the committee overseeing casinos. Either way, Prigozhin's gotten closer to Putin since then, and he's earned the nickname Putin's chef for his restaurant and catering empire. And now he's a warlord as well, it seems. Warlord and a chef. Wow. Okay. Let's try to dig into what exactly happened on Saturday
0: for the people who weren't glued to their TV screens like like I was, and I, I imagine you were. It starts with Wagner troops rolling into Rostov-on-Don, which is a city in the south of Russia, and ends with one of the more dramatic anti-climaxes we've ever seen. Why don't we start from what caused them to go into Rostov-on-Don?
1: So, that was the beginning of the rebellion Prigozhin at first anyway, he didn't categorize it as a as a military coup or, or a coup attempt. He called it a march for justice. And he made it clear that his beef was specifically with the Ministry of Defense. It wasn't necessary with Putin as such. So they moved into Rostov-on-Don, which is no small feat. Rostov-on-Don is a major city in Russia. I think it's the 10th biggest city in Russia.
0: Footage surfaced at dawn, showing Wagner fighters surrounding the military headquarters in the southern Russian city of Rostov.
1: They occupied it with Practically no resistance, and then a contingent start of Wagner troops started advancing northwards past Voronezh, where there was a little fighting, and onwards towards Moscow.
0: Mm. Yeah, he marched in with no resistance into Rostov-on-Don. But then we started to see signs that this was getting pretty serious.
1: They shot down a Russian military helicopter. A large explosion at an oil depot. Multiple helicopters as well can be seen in the area. I talked to a girl from Varnej who was looking out of her window and she could actually see the columns of smoke rising from the oil depot, which got blown up. At the same time, people around the city were sharing Videos on Telegram, like uh, a shell ram- landed here or there, or a car was on fire, or there are soldiers on the street.
0: Yeah, I'm sure you saw those videos of citizens taking selfies with Wagner troops. Um, it was kind of a rare glimpse of real-time public opinion in Russia. Uh, and I wonder if you read anything into that in terms of how this war in Ukraine is playing and how this incident is playing with the people.
1: I've talked to natives of Rostov, and the atmosphere in the city during the occupation was was totally calm, actually. The crowds were even cheering them on. I don't think that's so much because of the war as such. It's more like... So everyone knows that Russia has a massive problem with corruption and thieving at the highest level, and the public can see they're being lied to. So first, it was just a, a special operation, which implies, you know, just like some covert ops taking place thousands of miles away. Then they started running out of men. So they had to announce mobilizations. So now the war is touching citizens' everyday lives. And Prigozhin, he raged against the system. So I think that was his populist appeal. But I don't think that necessarily reflects opinions on the war as such. So back to Saturday.
0: One of the more dramatic moments was when Vladimir Putin took to the airwaves and spoke directly to the Russian people. What did you make of his address?
1: Well, first of all, it took him a long time to actually get around to addressing the public. There are reports that he was actually flown out of Moscow, so it doesn't look good on him, you know, that that it looks like he was running and hiding. We didn't really know what's happening behind the scenes, but that's the impression a lot of people got. So his speech, uh, his speech, like, calling out the the mutineers as as traitors and so on, didn't actually, like, reaffirm his strength in terms of being the leader of Russia.
0: He doesn't mince words. He was not acting conciliatory at all. I mean, considering the the harsh language of his speech and the imagery of those those troops moving almost unimpeded towards the capital, what were you thinking was going to happen?
1: I don't know. I'm not sure what the what the end game was. Could they take Moscow? I'm not sure how many troops were were actually advancing to Moscow, but I've heard it's it was somewhere in the area of 5,000 men, which isn't enough to occupy a city of Moscow's size. But seeing as how like some of the military and the police just seem to be standing aside for them, I think it's possible they could have got to the Kremlin but then then what would they do? but it doesn't seem like anyone was actively siding with Wagner. like it doesn't look like our were defecting to their side, for example. Mm. So I'm not sure like if they if they had reached Moscow, what would the end game be? Would there be like a, a bloody showdown? Now we won't know probably. But just as
0: suddenly as the mutiny began, it ended.
1: Prigozhin released an audio
0: message saying his troops would turn around and go back to field camps to avoid
1: shedding Russian blood. Well, Prigozhin, man, he's such a tease. Like, we were all glued to our screens, you know, thinking, is this going to be the end of Putin? Is this going to be Russian Civil War II? And yeah, in the end, it was just massive anti-climax. Those forces stood down. The Kremlin says he will move to Belarus and all criminal charges against him and his soldiers will be withdrawn. Prigozhin seems to have struck a deal with the, with the president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, and he go into a car willingly, smiling, and no one's actually... Right now, it's Monday, so this could change by the time your, your broadcast goes out on air. But, like, as of Monday morning, no one's seen him since. Mm. So
0: Prigozhin retires for life as a gentleman farmer in Belarus. That's the
1: plan? Do you buy that? I don't think that's the end of his saga. So if there's one thing that Putin can't abide, it's traitors. And he called Prigozhin a traitor in front of the whole nation. And I'm sure Prigozhin knows this. And any agreement he made with the dictator of Belarus is no agreement at all. But the fact that he chose to go along anyway, instead of saving his own behind when he was in a position to do so, I don't think that's the last we've heard of him. So, with
0: the head of the Wagner Group now exiled, or worse, and President Putin weakened, at best, what happens to everyone else? I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, a dramatized podcast from Al Jazeera. In this season, we hear from some of history's most notable women. An unconventional and extraordinary artist.
1: Me? I am Frida Kahlo.
0: A communist revolutionary.
1: Everyone in China knew my face.
0: You've heard of them. Now it's time you hear from them. Hindsight. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. One of the reasons why Wagner was able to get so close to Moscow, at least according to some, is that most of the Russian army is in Ukraine. What
1: happens there now?
0: Do you think this swings the momentum or gives at least an advantage to Ukraine's counteroffensive?
1: I think certainly, yeah, the weaknesses within the Russian leadership are becoming more apparent. Also, we shouldn't underestimate. So even if nothing else, the Russian military lost at least four aircraft that day. So if nothing else happened, that's like a slight advantage to Ukraine there because like aircraft are expensive. They need parts. I've read that this is one of the worst days for like the Russian airborne forces in a very long time. So there's something to be said about that.
0: I am curious what happens to Wagner fighters now. I mean, these are the guys who are caught in the middle. Do you think this spells the end for Wagner as we know it?
1: As far as I know, the ordinary mercs, they're being redeployed to Ukraine. I think some of them are signing contracts with the MOD. I think they'll probably be closer integrated since the official armed forces. This is from Putin's address on Monday night.
0: Friends, I thank those soldiers and commanders of the Wagner Group who made the only right decision. They did not turn to fratricidal bloodshed. They stopped at the last line. Today, you have the opportunity to continue serving Russia by entering into a contract with the Ministry of Defense or other law enforcement agencies, or to return to your family and friends. Whoever wants to can go to Belarus. The promise I made will be fulfilled.
1: You know, they need them on the battlefield, and they can't risk alienating them again either. So, yeah, I think they'll probably just become part of the regular army either formally or informally.
0: Wow, so yeah, so I guess that does spell the end of Wagner as we know it, at least. So the way that those Wagner columns were speeding almost unimpeded towards the capital, it does strike me that that's exactly what Putin said would happen in Ukraine. And that was a year and a half ago. And instead, tens of thousands of Russian soldiers are dead. His leadership is now being openly challenged. Do you think we'll look back and see this as the beginning of the end of the war in Ukraine?
1: I think this is the beginning of the end for Putin individually, but it's hard to tell what's happening behind closed doors. So there's no indication that Putin's going to stop the war by himself. He's too invested in it. But we don't know which, if any, factions in the elite are disgruntled enough with Putin's handling of the war and, you know, the general situation in Russia to try and get rid of him somehow. We know for sure that the more business-minded oligarchs, they're losing out big time. But will they get the siloviki, so the security officials, the generals, and the spy chiefs on board? Putin might try to purge them, but this whole affair has shown that he doesn't really know who he can trust. So I think his days are numbered, but what comes after him, I don't know. It might be someone even more hawkish, someone who wants to put the whole society on a war footing.
0: That's exactly where I was going, because watching this play out Saturday, I mean, Putin's issues are well documented. But for a moment there, it really seemed like he might be replaced by Prigozhin, who leads a mercenary group accused of countless atrocities in Africa and the Middle East. I don't know. I wonder if from the West perspective, what happened isn't really the best case scenario, whereas Wagner is neutralized and kind of over, at least in its previous form, and Putin is weakened.
1: I mean, yeah, obviously the paramilitary warlord with possible organized crime ties isn't exactly a pacifist. But in recent interviews, he's also hinted that the invasion of Ukraine was launched on false pretenses, That could just be part of his power play, though. I've also heard that there is a kind of a grudging respect between him and Ukrainian officers. So there was some hope among Russian oppositionists that Prigozhin in the presidential powers might be a better outcome. But me personally, I don't know. Now everyone knows that everything is not as Putin kept putting it last year going according to plan, and in fact a relatively small band of armed men can march almost all the way to Moscow, encountering minimal resistance. Prigozhin wasn't the only one in Russia with his own private army either, so look at someone like Ramzan Kadyrov, the the leader of Chechnya, for example, he's gonna be the first one to paint himself as some kind of decolonial freedom fighter the minute the screws turn loose. So I think we can expect more chaos later on. That's a great point because
0: I don't think people realize how fractured Russia is and how removed Moscow is to the rest of this enormous country. I mean, the country is so big. There's an analogy I always think of is that from Moscow to the Pacific Ocean is the same distance from Moscow to Chicago. That's how big this country is. And it's held together with the this idea of absolute power. And nobody was better
1: at projecting that
0: power than Putin.
1: I don't think we should go too overboard. There's a lot of talk fantasizing about the, the breakup of, of Russia. Like, I don't think we should place too much stock in that. Having said that, there isn't really like a system built outside Putin. For the past 20 years, Putin's been building power around himself. So once he goes, yeah, like, as you said, that's the the concentration of power around the whole country across 11 time zones is around Putin. So once he goes, you know, the whole thing could collapse. And I don't really know what that's going to look like. It could be messy.
0: And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Miranda Lynn with David Enders, Khalid Sultan, Amy Walters, Chloe K. Lee, Sonia Bagat, Ashish Malhotra, Nagin Oliay, and me, Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan, Alexandra Locke is the Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.